Normally, we talk about all the packages installed on Slackware Linux on this show. Today, I'm going to do something a little bit different because I have to research the next couple of packages anyway. So I, I figured I'd talk a little bit of, about some things that have been on my mind lately. And, and one of them is the um, sustainability, I guess, or maintainability of open source. It's kind of an important topic, really, like really important. And it has come sort of to the point now where open source is in a very different place than where it was even when I started in open source, which, as I've said before, around 2006, 2008, time frame. Open source has developed a lot. I mean, it has been over 10 years, so of course it would have. And prior to that, it, 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 you know, even when I got into it, it had already changed a lot. So where are we now? I kind of feel like where we are now is what I've said in, in the, the past, I don't know, year or two years on this show. We are where we said we wanted to be. We won. Yay, right? Like, we won. It doesn't it feel great? When I say we, of course, I'm, I'm speaking for sort of like an imaginary subset of people who appreciate open source. There isn't a governing body, even the open source initiative at opensource.org, even they are not a governing body. They are the protectors of the definition of what open source is. But even that, I mean, when I say protector, they're really just a steward. If someone calls their stuff open source and it's not open source, there's nothing anybody can do. Opensource.org does not have a police force that can go and 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 remove signage from the premises. You know, like it's just, it's, it's it's just an agreement among a bunch of people across the entire world about hey when you say open source together in one sort of as one word almost you're referring to this specific thing and if people start using it in a different way then that definition will change that's how language works so open source has changed and we quote unquote we meaning me and some other people, probably, wanted at some point, we said, wouldn't it be cool if open source was, like, really accepted and you could use it just just the same way that that, that, that person over there is using a non-open source program on their computer at work? Wouldn't it be cool if I could use an open source program on my computer at work? And, well, now you maybe can sometimes, depending on who you are and where you work and their policies and so on. So that didn't sound like winning, but I mean, wouldn't it be cool if you could go to work and just work on open source? Again, well, you can sometimes maybe if you're a, a specific person in a specific job role doing a specific thing. Okay, well, that doesn't sound a whole lot like winning either. Well, what if Microsoft just stopped suing people for working on open source? Okay, well, generally speaking, that has actually stopped. So I guess in that sense, we really, really have won. There's probably an exception to the rule out there. They're probably still suing somebody. But let's just say, in general, people are not being sued as much by Microsoft for working on open source. And of course Apple has 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 adopted lots of open source into their into their pipeline, into their products, I should say. They're not giving code back, they're using mostly the kind of code that you don't have to give anything back for using. I mean that's not strictly true. Cups, for instance, the the common Unix printing system that that gets stuff updated because Apple 
purchased it uh, and, and you know, it had a certain license to it and, and they have not been able to, to undermine that yet. And there are lots of big companies out there using open source. And so, as I've said before, it really, really feels like we have one. And again, we is an imaginary group of a subset of people. And one, of course, is is just, it's, I don't even know what it is yet, still. I, I don't think anyone really knew what it was. I mean, did anyone ever say what winning would look like? I'm not sure that we did. But if you look at the modern landscape of computing, you see a lot of things that look like a victory. You have Microsoft, the company that sued lots of people for doing pretty much, you know, ordinary computery things, just trying to get things to interoperate. You have Microsoft contributing code freely, like they're not obligated to, they're actually just contributing code to the Linux kernel. Now you might think, well, sure, they're, 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 they're contributing freely, but I mean, it's bit, it's to their benefit. They're not, they aren't, just paying people to make Linux better. And that's true, but I mean, you could make the same argument about anybody, right? Nobody's contributing code to the Linux kernel or any other project just to make it better, because in order to make something better, you have to have an opinion on where it is now. And so in your opinion, it could be better, and therefore you're contributing code to it to make it better, in part for yourself, right? I mean, there are very few people who contribute to projects that they don't use. And in fact, I, I'm not even sure if it's really desirable for people to contribute code to projects that they don't use. Because then you just kind of have to wonder, like, what, what is this code? Like, are you, have you put thought into this? Or is this just code that you have managed to write that does a thing and you've decided, oh, that would make this application better? I mean, I'm sure there, you know, there are probably cases where that does make sense. Someone could wander along a, a bug report to discover that a problem exists, write the fix for it and submit it, and now they have, you know, credit on on a, on a bug fix, essentially. But I think mostly people are contributing code for free because they're using a thing and they've found a bug or they've found something that ought to be there that isn't there. Uh, so they, they are making a feature request, essentially, but instead of a feature request, really they're just adding a feature, which is a great thing to do. But I think mostly it's because you're using it and you you see how it could be better. So the fact that we've uh, tricked Microsoft and Apple and Google and a bunch of other things, we've tricked these big companies into having to contribute open source code to us, the non-corporate entities, the humans of the world, that seems like a, a victory. And I don't think it's wrong to think that. I think there's something to that. By hook or by crook, and mostly by crook, or by hook, I don't know which is which, but by hook or by crook, we have we, we have twisted the arms of a lot of different companies out there. And for whatever reason, they are being compelled to contribute open source. Open source code. They are, they are contributing that to the world. Now, it is not all equal. Like, it's not all equal quality. Equal uh, sincerity. I mean, not literal sincerity. Like, I don't care what the people behind the companies are feeling when they're writing the code and contributing the code. But in terms of longevity, like, what's their intent? Do they intend for this code to continue to be open source forever? Or are they just doing it as a PR stunt? And believe me, there are plenty of examples where people have done it for a PR stunt. 
you have open source software for a while to drum up a community and to encourage adoption, and then you change your license later on down the road. And it works. It happens. People do that. And there's a, there's a dare happening frequently when that happens. The, the dare is how much of a community have we really built and how how dependent upon the company is that community sometimes when a software changes its status from open source to something else then people accept that that that's it no no not really that big of a problem maybe they leave an open api available or something and that that satiates a lot of the developer need to contribute or 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 maybe not even that much but people are just happy to continue using the software other times you upset half the community but you get to keep the other half and so everyone's more or less fine. And still other times the community walks away, takes the, the latest copy of the source code, and continues to develop it. That's, I think, what most open source users think ought to happen whenever a company goes back on its word. If you go open source, and then you decide to stop being open source, then in theory, the community will take your code, the last copy of the code that you delivered as open source, and continue to develop it. But that doesn't always happen. It doesn't always happen for a couple of different reasons. Sometimes most of the development wasn't happening in the community, as it turns out. The company has been paying the developers to do it all along. I mean, not like under the table. I'm saying that the most active development was happening at the company. Yes, there's a, a quote-unquote community around that code. Maybe there's some user contribution, but generally the people spending time on the code were at the company. And then when they go closed, when they go closed source, the community doesn't fork the project because there's not anybody in the community who has the desire or wherewithal to do that. Other times, the the problem is that the community just doesn't. There, there's not the expertise. There's not the level of expertise within the contributors of the community, or there is that level of expertise, but the people who who could theoretically fork the project. That's just too much work for them at this point, right now in their lives, or whatever. So it just doesn't happen. So we have lots of different results when this happens, but it does happen. And you kind of have to appreciate that, again, one way or the other, we got open source code. Now, whether that open source code persists after being closed, you kind of have to ask, well, what good was the code then? And that's a good question. It's a fair question. I mean, it, was it any good? I mean, maybe. If you got some good use out of it while it was around and open, then maybe it is good that it existed. Maybe it changed the way people perceived a thing. I mean, if you think about it, the Atom Editor. I talk about that sometimes. I, I really liked the Atom Editor, and when I say I really liked, I mean, in theory, I really liked it. I, I never used it, but I tried to use it here and there, and I enjoyed it. I thought it was a cool little project. It was one of those projects that I would recommend to people a lot, and I, I try not to do that because I, I prefer to recommend editors and, and, and tools that I use, but for the Atom Editor, I kind of made an exception, and I did, I did try that's why I tried to use it I tried to keep up with it and it, because it was just good it's a good editor it, it's very very featureful it's ex, it's extensible but easy to use and it just seemed like a really good sort of borderline editor for people who who need a little bit of an editor to do just the basics and a little bit of an editor to do like Python coding 
you know, it's just it was a good sort of middle ground, like that nice sweet spot between just a text editor for config files and a full-scale IDE. It was right there in the middle, and it was an open source editor, and if my memory is correct, and I, I could be wrong, but if my memory is correct, it was sort of seen for a while as a a competitor to Sublime Text Editor, which is a non-open source text editor that for whatever reason gained a lot of popularity. It kind of made a splash back in, what, 2012, 2013? People started using it, and they got really excited about it, and really, I mean, you would see it on lots of machines for some reason, you know? Like, open source developers would be using Sublime Text Editor, and you'd just sort of scratch your head, and you'd think, why are you doing that? And the open source fanatic in me would always just sort of grumble and then say, well, why don't you just use Emacs or Vim and like a normal person? And the answer I think that we hate to admit as open source fanatics is that is is that the people are using this new thing in many cases that's not open source because it it solves a problem that open source is not is not solving like it's doing something that is lacking in the open source alternatives and the the troubling thing about that is very often that's not a thing that it it's a nice to have not a need to have and i think within open source a lot of times we we get very caught up on the need to have and we pretend like the nice to have just doesn't matter like that doesn't sway any opinion but i think time and time again you'll see that it actually has a lot of sway people very much like the nice to haves of technology i mean for a very long time i just couldn't understand why anyone would would need anything more than KDE or GNOME. And I'm talking about like circa 2009, 2010. It seemed perfectly reasonable to me that those were desktops that people should be able to use. But if you look at those desktops, GNOME and KDE back in 2009 to 2010, they weren't the same as OS X and Windows. I don't know what OS X and Windows were doing at that time, I don't remember, but they were doing things that those desktops were not answering. Now, you could get to those places with those desktops with extensions and plugins. So ultimately you could mimic, you could provide what those other ones were were trying to provide, but they, they didn't give it to the people out of the box. And so you would you would see people being resistant to GNOME and KDE. But I mean, hand on my heart, people, I, I, nobody that I've shown GNOME 3 to has ever frowned at it as a desktop. People like GNOME 3. I even kind of like GNOME 3. I don't, I don't use, well, no, I can't say that anymore. I have it on my desktop, on my laptop, not my desktop. My laptop that runs, not Slackware, that runs RHEL, that runs a GNOME 3 desktop, and I like it. I'm fine with it. It's very nice. It has, it's very pretty, it's very minimal, it's got a lot of cool effects, it's got a little sidebar on the side, which shouldn't really be on this. No, is it on the side now? No, it's on the bottom now, I think. Oh, it shouldn't be on the bottom. It should be on the side. That's why. Um, and there's an extension to put it on the side. But anyway, people like GNOME 3. It is providing whatever people need in a desktop now, which I think honestly is down to the, the sort of, oh, this feels kind of like a mobile device. But anyway, so Sublime Text, not an open source text editor. And then there was Atom, A-T-O-M. It's, it's gone now. GitHub purchased it, and it was open source for a while. And then a couple of years ago, they killed it. And if my memory is correct, as I say, it started out as kind of like a sublime text killer, and then 
um, Visual Code, what is it called? Visual Code? Is that what it's called? Code, Visual Code Studio? Visual Code. Something by Microsoft called, I think it's just called Visual Code, or VS Code, v, v, Visual Studio Code, v, VS Code. Um, there's an open source or a, a non-Microsoft a non branded version called Codium that you could download if you wanted to use it. That came along and kind of killed Atom because it was very much, I mean, if you look at VS Code and you look at Atom, they're really, really similar. Like, really similar. Hard to tell them apart similar. And then suddenly, Microsoft, uh, after buying GitHub, which, and, and Adam was GitHub's uh, text editor of choice, after purchasing uh, GitHub, Microsoft conveniently killed off Atom. I don't think that's why they <laughs> bought GitHub, just to be clear. I'm just saying, they had two editors on their hand. They had to make a choice. Obviously, they're going to choose Visual uh, v VS Code. And so they got rid of Atom. Now, in the case of the Atom text editor, the community, somewhat surprisingly, to be honest, I didn't know they had such a strong community, uh, but they do. They, they did, they do. And uh, they decided that they would fork Atom and have done so at Pulsar as Pulsar Edit. And you can find that at github.com slash Pulsar dash edit. The irony of them staying on GitHub does not escape me. But that's, so that was a project that, that was open source and then just kind of got abandoned and actually has continued, at least for now. I mean, I guess we'll see how long it goes, but I mean, it, it seems to have quite a, quite a strong community after all. Uh, and it's a good editor. So in, in that case, I, I think you get the whole spectrum, to be honest. You've got this open source editor that that maybe hasn't got a chance against a closed source competitor, but somehow makes enough of a name for itself to, to get popular. And I, I, I have to think that, that Adam probably influenced VS Code. Maybe a little, maybe a lot. And so even if that if it had gotten killed off, I mean, it did get killed off, but even if no one had picked it up, I, I kind of feel like you have to make the argument that, that because that source code was open for a while and had a community, even if it didn't have the longevity that, that maybe one would hope, it still influenced other editors. And I think there's value there. I think there's, there's quite a few projects out there probably that they get open sourced and then they get closed sourced or they get abandoned or whatever. And part of you wants to kind of lament the loss of that code. But believe it or not, source code isn't always about lines of text that you can compile with an editor. Uh, no, you would compile it with a compiler. You would edit it with an editor. Uh, it's not always about the code. Sometimes it's just about the ideas. And sometimes when something is open source, it's putting an idea out there and it's advertising that idea. And because its code is open source, then, I mean, certainly its ideas are open source. I mean, you can steal from anything, right? It doesn't have to be open source. We've seen that already. I mean, people, computer systems steal from each other all the time. Oh, I like that idea. I'll take that for mine, thanks. Not your code, just the idea. I'll, I'll remake it myself. Happens all the time, and it's, it's apparently it's fine. And, and I think that's part of being open source, is that you're contributing an idea out there, and if someone wants to adopt it and roll it into their project or their product, that's fine. And if that project of yours gets abandoned or gets shut down for some reason, then it kind of, you know, like, not to put too fine a point on it, but, but it kind of lives on because of how it has inspired other people. I don't mean that to sound as, as, <laughs> as 
sappy as it probably sounds, but I, I really believe that. I think that sometimes open source code makes the impression that it needs to make on people and then goes away. And yes, the, the literal lines of code are functionally gone. I mean, they're probably actually still online somewhere or on someone's computer somewhere, but like they're gone. Nobody, nobody uses it. Nobody cares about it anymore. It's gone. But you know, it's still, it, it, People used it, used that project. They they got ideas from it, and that's a big deal. And so the point I'm trying to make, I guess, is that companies and corporations out there that are sometimes subsuming open source projects, they're buying them up and then killing them off, or they're, they, they seem to be taking them over. Sometimes that isn't that concerning. It's It might be frustrating if you're a user of the thing that a company is actively taking taking over. That... that that can be very frustrating, but in many in many ways that, that might not be the worst thing in the world. Sometimes it just means that the literal source code is no longer super useful to people, but there's that 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 thing has still existed. It's still it's still around. It 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 has still made its impression on the world, and that's a good thing. And if a company is the owner of the code in the first place, they they started the project, they open sourced it, and then they closed sourced it or something like MongoDB or something, then Although MongoDB, I mean, that's a different thing entirely because of the SPPL. So, um, but yeah, if, if open and then close, that might not be that big of a deal because we got the open source code. We got the ideas. We got the, we, we got the experience. We got all of this stuff from a company that traditionally, pretty much inarguably, you just didn't get 20 years ago. And so it feels a little bit still like, yeah, hey, we won. But I'm still asking that with a question inflection at the end. We won? Like, is the, did we win? Is this what we wanted? I don't remember. Again, nobody actually defined what we wanted. And part of that is because there's no we. Every one of us using open source and contributing to open source in whatever way we contribute, the win conditions are up to us to decide. So if you're looking out at the world right now and, and, and you're thinking, yep, we won, then yay, you won. And if you're looking out at it and saying, no, no, this is not right, this is not good, then you didn't win. And if that is what you're thinking, I, I think I might understand what your, what your line of thinking is. I, I, I think what you might be picking up on, and, and this is a guess because I, 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 I'm speaking to a lot of different people right now, including you, dear listener, but you have your own thoughts. But I'm going to guess, I'm going to hazard a guess, that what you and, and maybe me sometimes are thinking is that the, the computing side of open source has become really, really complex. Or I should say the computing side of, of software has become really, really complex. What used to be possible to maintain in a 200-line script and you get a GUI and everything back in, you know, I don't know, 2002, now seems to be something that you have to, you have to write in 50 different files in, in a memory-safe uh, language with a cross-compiled GUI uh, th that only uses um, a specific build of the framework that you want to use. And when you package it, you have to package all of the dependencies except the that one library that nobody packages because it's on most platforms anyway. You know, and it, it's just like it's it's such a it is no longer a light lift. There just doesn't there don't seem to be any lightweight things anymore. I mean 
there are, but you know what I mean? Like from, from the perspective of, of many people, there don't seem to be simple things anymore. You can't just whip up a quick script for this or that and expect to be able to distribute it in a meaningful way. Like that's a really, really hard thing now. I challenge you to sit down and write a application with a GUI in even something simple like Python and then figure out how to get it to people so that they can just install it and use it. It's really, really hard. I mean, that's one reason I'm really a big fan of Java, because that makes it really, really easy. There might be other really, really easy solutions out there, like JavaScript and Electron. That that seems pretty easy, although I haven't yet tried it myself. There's, there's other stuff out there probably, but I know that Java, you, you compile it into a jar, and you send it to people and it just works. Although there are caveats there. Are you using Swing or are you using JavaFX? What's the status of JavaFX now? How do you get that on people's computers? So even that, like my last great hope for cross-platform programming that people can just use, even that there's a caveat. And that, I just don't feel like that exactly existed 15, 20 years ago. I feel like then you could reasonably do something like create a little project in Perl using the Perl GTK bindings and you would have a GUI like DVD uh, colon colon rip, I think is what it was. Co it used to be called. I mean, it probably still exists. Literally written, it was, it was it was written in Perl and used GTK bindings to do a GUI, and it was you couldn't tell it apart from from a big application that was compiled with lots and lots of libraries and and fancy things. It was just it was just so easy. I mean, it wasn't easy. It took a lot of work. Probably <laughs> the the person who programmed it probably didn't think it was easy at the time, but it was managed. And nowadays, it just seems like there's so much out there that's not really manageable. The packaging, the containers, the the, the, the platforming, all of the, the... And then when you put it online, you can just throw it on some website, but no one will ever find it. And Google won't index that if you have a 404 anywhere on the page, because then Google won't take you seriously. And even if Google does take you seriously, it has to find you first. And then it has to believe that you're a, a, a reliable source of something or another. So you just throw it onto GitHub or GitLab, because you've heard those are social coding sites. So people will probably just flock to those projects. Then, no, there's too much on there. People won't find it. It's a big, big world out there now, and it seems like everything you try to do has a bunch of dependencies and a bunch of requirements, and it just seems really, really difficult to whip something up as a hobbyist and share it among other hobbyists. So has open source won, or has open source just gotten too big? Let's go for a really quick coffee break. We'll come back and discuss. <laughs> Okay, we're back. I've got a um, cup of Jed's coffee. Jed is not a person. Well, Jed might be a person, but really it's a brand of coffee. Got it from the supermarket because it was kind of on sale and it was a dark roast. And I've just, I feel like I've been drinking so many really mild coffees lately that I just thought, you know what? I should get like a dark roast. And so that's what I'm drinking right now. And it's, it's, it's good. It's good. Jed's is not like, it's not the, it isn't the top shelf coffee. So it's kind of touch and go, but this, this is okay. I, I, I'm, I'm enjoying this one. All right. So has open source gotten too big? Is that the problem? I think there's a 
possibility that that is the problem. Open source did win, it got big, and a lot of people are feeling a little bit out of touch with it. I mean, it is weird when you go into your favorite open source cafe, as it were, and and everyone there, you don't know anybody. They're all strangers. And you think, what happened to this place? I used to come in here and I knew everybody. And now it's nothing but people who who are getting paid uh, to be here and and they're many of them are nice i guess but i mean where did everybody go i think that's partly what some of us are feeling about open source i feel like there's a little bit of um a a a, a loss of connectivity maybe is that a problem i don't know i don't think i i tend to think that it's not and while it's kind of scary to think oh well, all these people are only here because they're being paid to be here once again as i've as i've said before the coffee break i think ultimately the benefits outweigh the sort of loss of culture but that's a crazy thing to say loss of culture is really really not great that's not a good thing uh well i mean depends on the culture you're losing i guess but i mean generally speaking positively speaking that's not a good thing to, to just lose your, your, you know, the hacker culture. That's not something we want to lose. But I don't know that open source getting big and winning is necessarily meaning that culture has been lost. I think that the culture may have migrated somewhere. And I think it's up to us individuals, if you're thinking, eh, open source isn't quite the way that it used to be. It's not as exciting as it used to be, or, or whatever the, whatever the, the problem might be, it, I think it is kind of up to us to go find where our culture wandered off to. I've, I've talked about this in a little, in, in some ways before. Uh, certainly my outlet right now is SDF, Super Domain Fortress, or whatever SDF stands for these days. It's a shared Unix server space. You can sign up for an account and wander around aimlessly. And that's what you do generally when you get on SDF. It's, it isn't, I, I don't, I don't love the way that it's documented. I don't love all of the applications that it's running. I don't love the limitations that it has on it. But it's 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 a server space, and you can you can have a shell account, and you can mess around with all the different little applications running on it, like the bulletin board and the different communication channels, the Gopher server, the Gemini server. It's 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 a place where people where, where hobbyists hang out. It's definitely one of those places that that it it's it's insular more or less by choice or maybe it's just so niche that it's that that, that it's insular but it, it's a small place it's not to say that it couldn't be bought out by someone someone could 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 offer the admin millions of dollars and and he could turn over the keys to someone it's not impossible to imagine but for now it is what it is it's a small community of unix shell enthusiasts that can be a little intimidating though i mean if if you're new to a place and you're not terribly extroverted it can be kind of a can be kind of daunting to just join a shell account and try to meet people like how do you do that i guess you go to the bulletin board and you post messages and see who responds but then what do you do with that person when, when they respond do you have to be their friend now do you have to talk to them you have to think of things to say i don't know i don't know how any of that stuff works and but the good news is you don't like have to go to sdf i'm just mentioning that as as an outlet that i have the other outlet i think are are well you and me dear listener i mean we're we're individuals who who are 
interested in open source and free software and Linux and POSIX and things like that. And and there's there are communities to be formed just all around, whether it's on the World Wide Web or on some back channel like SDF or in Gemini Space or Gopher Space or whatever. You can you can seek out small communities that are doing things of interest and make that your open source community, your open source home. I mean, you know, I say that SDF is my outlet, but that's not true. I mean, Slackware, the Slackware community is also my outlet. That that actually hasn't changed a whole lot so far. And and it's a small little community of people who I don't really hang out with as such, but I mean, we're on mailing lists. I I know the names when they when they come up in Kmail when I'm reading through my messages. The communities are out there. They may have just shifted away from the places where they used to be. I think it's fair to look at that sometimes and see it as gentrification. You can kind of look at it and see a big corporation moving into a nice, homey, little, open-source neighborhood and pushing people out in order to make way for the big, flashy storefronts. And there's, I think, a sense of loss there. Like, if, if you were involved in a project, or if you just were a user of a project that got, quote-unquote, adopted by a corporate entity, as excited as that corporate-sponsored community manager might be to get to know you, after a while, it doesn't seem quite the same. And maybe you do get pushed out somewhere else. I think there's a sense of loss there, and I think that's okay. And I think it's important, it's equally important, to recognize those moves for what they are. I mean, when a corporation comes in and, quote-unquote, adopts a project, there's absolutely a motive there. You don't go and adopt a project if you have no reason to do so. That's not how corporations work. They don't see a need and move to to grant something. I mean, if they did, then that's what they would do. They would just gift a bunch of money to a project, and that would be the end of it. But instead, they go in and they purchase it. They purchase the name. They purchase the branding, the iconography, code as licensed to the community in its current state. And there's nobody and nothing in the world saying that they can't then flip a switch and make that license different. That's how it works, and we have to kind of expect that all around. I mean, it's it's just change, and that's how things happen in this world. I think it's okay to feel a sense of, of loss and maybe even betrayal when something like that happens. But that's exactly why I've said for a very long time now on the show that open source isn't about the code. It's about the people. And as ridiculous as that sounds, I mean, it sounds like a corporately sponsored line right there. As ridiculous as it sounds, it is true, ultimately. Like, it's the people behind the code that make open source. A company can purchase everything about an open source project. They can they can pay people to contribute to it. When that company walks away or decides to change the license, or the community decides to walk away from the company because they've changed the license, that community is made of people. And whether they decide to fork a project and make it continue on into the future, like Atom Editor becoming Pulsar Editor, or whether they simply decide that they're done with that 
part of their life and they're not really interested in that anymore. Maybe they found different editors or maybe they found a different project to contribute to, whatever. They still have the community if they want it. They still have one another. They can still contribute, uh, collaborate and communicate. That was the other word I was looking for. Communicate over whatever channels they want to. Ideally, it would be an open source channel, not not something on a closed source chat server. And that's really, really powerful. Although, you know, I said that as an aside, but in reality, like at the end of the day, like that community would persist even over a closed source chat platform. And that's what I'm saying is that ultimately open source is about the people. And that's an important thing to keep in mind because yes, companies may come and companies may go. They might overtake a project. They might change a project out from under you. Whatever happens, Keep your eye on the real value of what you've of what you had found. And in the moment when you find a cool new software, I mean the value is the software. Like that's that's the value. And as I've said very frequently, if you if you are using open source and you're never looking at the code, the source code, then effectively it's not even open source to you. It's just software. But once you become involved in that software and invested in it and you're contributing to it in some way, whether it's just through through telling other people about it or contributing actual code or reporting a bug that you've found, you know, whatever you're doing for that open source software, eventually you become part of that community. And at that point, the value starts to shift. You might not realize it at that time, but the value is no longer just the software. That's when you're starting to actually get value out of the open source nature of the software. And that community supporting that software can persist beyond the software's life cycle. Whether that community, like I say, makes another open source project or whether they just remain friends, they're the power of open source. They're the thing making open source really, really persist. Because obviously if companies were the only sustainers of open source, it would be a very different landscape. I think we get a hint of that landscape. If you just look at the corporate side of open source today, you can see it. I mean, Microsoft contributing to the Linux kernel. It's not happening because Microsoft is pals with Linus Torvalds. It's happening because they need something out of that kernel. They need that kernel to do something for them. And so they're contributing code to it, which is completely fair. But it is a transaction. It's a transactional thing. And I think that's what open source to companies does look like. Whereas open source to individuals is more of a way of life. And culture is something that you don't have to ever lose, really. I mean, that's the thing that's being kept alive by people, is the open source culture, the open culture. Whether that's creative or technical, that's the thing that we have. That's the thing that persists. And it'll persist beyond applications. And you know what? It'll persist beyond operating systems. As much as it pains me to, to say it, eventually the operating system that I'm using right now is not going to exist. Whether that's Slackware or Linux in general, at, at some point this is not going to be a useful thing. But there will be something after it. And whatever it is, it'll be open source. And whoever is building it and using it is going to be an open community. Because that's what counts. That's pretty much all I have to say about that subject. Uh, in closing, I want to thank each and every one of you, dear listeners, uh, for being part of my little tiny community. Uh, I don't actually know how many listeners I have. I never really know what a bot download is versus a human being download from, from you know my feeds. So I have no idea. There could be like 30 of you, there could be a thousand of you, there could be more, I don't know. But thank you for being part of this community. As always, I invite you to contact me over email or Mastodon or however you do or do not want to connect if you 
don't want to connect, that's fine too. You keep downloading the episodes and enjoy them. But thanks for being part of this small open community and keep it up. Keep find find other communities to be a part of. Find places that you're welcome. Find places that are open. Help those grow and be sustainable. And I think that's probably worth saying as well. Building a community doesn't mean, again, just like there is no we in open source, building a community doesn't mean there needs to be a flashy website declaring that the community exists. I mean, you're likely to possibly attract more people to your community if you have something announcing that the community exists. But in real life, like in actual life, nobody cares in the nicest way possible whether you're a member of a community, whether a community exists. The people who care about a community are the people in the community. In other words, it's possible to have a community without stickers, without a website. If you know people who are doing a thing that you share an interest in, that's a community. Don't get fooled by the presence of corporations and their declarations of what a community is. There's no, you don't need approval from anyone. Community isn't a corporate entity. It's just a bunch of people sharing an interest in something and communicating on some level. We're building so much technology all the time together. Let's just make sure that we're also building up strong communities. Talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. My name's Klaatu. You can reach me anytime over email with feedback or comments, tips, or just to say hi. My email address is klaatu at slackermedia.info. You can also reach me on the Mastodon network, not klaatu, at mastodon.xyz. The show's intro and outro music is by Fat Chance Lester. You can find their music on bandcamp.com or on gnuworldorder.info in the archive you'll find a music directory containing the album from which this music has been extracted until next time thanks for listening and keep the source open